From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jamal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. And, you know, new year, new us. New year, new <laughs> us, yes. No, but really, what happened in the, before the new year was someone had turned 40. Oh my gosh, who could that be? I don't know, but you know, not me. I will say that on on the gram, it looked like it was. Uh, how did you feel the next day, Zach? Like, what was your hangover remedies? <laughs> you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna say this, and it's gonna sound untrue, but He's gonna I actually it. felt oh, I didn't get that drunk. Oh, I, I felt fine. I felt pretty good. I mean, the the one the one thing that's nice about having a sort of what I ended up doing, which is you know, sort of a a, a multi hour hangout session with you know some friends and family and stuff is um you know definitely always had a glass in hand but wasn't like you know i went to a friend's 40th birthday party the weekend before and there were like shots of tequila going on there i was drinking whiskey and i felt way worse after that one than i did after my own party which you know i'm okay with all told um you know basically drank wine except uh finished the night off with a guinness which was also uh, delicious okay yeah and uh you know it was it was great it's I don't know how it is for the two of you, but for me, there's like a weird thing when you're hosting a party, and especially for me when I'm hosting a party that's like for me, I I was really kind of nervous about it. And despite having hosted a number of parties in my life, certainly worked in the hospitality industry for many years, there's that, I I think, unavoidable thing of like, is anyone going to show up? Are they going to have a good time? Am I just going to be like, I'm going to be like, man, this party sucks. And I wasn't really like concerned about that. But fortunately, people did show up. They did have a good time. If they thought the party sucked, they kept it to themselves. And uh, <laughs> it was great. And I drank a lot of wine, for sure. <laughs> That's great. So what are the standouts? Because, I mean, I know that we normally would do a what we've been drinking. But, like, I feel like, you know, you've earned the right <laughs> <laughs> to, to 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 at least list some of them on this uh this once every pod. forty years you'll indulge yeah, me yeah, on this yeah, one yeah, thank exactly. you exactly <laughs> um well you know I what I ended up doing was bringing um a lot of bottles from my collection to the bar that were not necessarily like the most uh, expensive or or even sort of you know nicest or however you would put it bottles but bottles that were either important to me or just I thought would be interesting bottles that maybe were nice to try in a group as opposed to like opening just at home with me and Caitlin or whatever. So a couple of the standouts, there was uh, Hatsakadis, um, a Sirtico from Santorini that was made in a very oxidative style. Mm. So an orange wine uh, made from a Sirtico, which I don't think I'd ever really, I tried this specific wine before, but I haven't really seen much else of that um, certainly in the U.S. market. Uh, and it was old. It was a 2011. I actually, um, <laughs> that bottle has a great story. It was, I tasted it many years ago at a Greek wine tasting and there were some extra bottles and the person hosting was like, hey, if you want any of these, take a you know, take a bottle. And so I grabbed one of these and it's just been sitting there on the shelf. And I every so often look at it. I'm like, hmm, I don't know. When am I going to open this? Like at some point I got to. And so I was, when I was going through my my shelves to figure out what to bring. I was like, here's a perfect opportunity because A, if it's bad, no one will really care. And B, you know, this way a bunch of people get to try it. And it was a surprise standout for sure. A lot of people really enjoyed that wine. Awesome. Yeah. A couple of the others that were really interesting. I had an old bottle of Mondeuz, which is a variety, a red variety from the Savoie region of France, kind of Syrah slash Gamay ish. That was also a little on the older side, 2012. Again, a bottle I just sort of had never opened and was kind of like, well, here's a chance, right? Uh-huh. Uh, had a, ba- a magnum of Bilcard Semel Rose, always a, always a winner. And I think the only other one that I wanted to make uh, a point to highlight, because again, sort of the sort of thing that I would not open typically 
for myself for sure, or even just at home, was a, a 750 of uh, Vendage Tardive Gewürztraminer, so a late harvest Gewürztraminer from uh, Maison Trimbach in Alsace. Again, just like a lovely dessert wine, but one of the things I think Joanna and you and I have discussed on the pod, maybe when Adam was out at one point, is just like sweet wine is really hard to make work in most people's lives because yeah. you just don't want that much. But here in a larger setting with yeah. a lot of people helping me, it was perfect. It was a nice little way to kind of have a sweet little finishing wine, although I think I then had some more wine after it. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> but <laughs> but it was really tasty. And again, just one of those bottles that I had been sort of looking at and being like, when am I going to open this? And here the, the opportunity presented itself. Very cool. Well, it sounds like yeah. a very awesome birthday. Yeah. It was nice. I'm sorry the two of you couldn't be there, but yeah. uh, I do understand why. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I was like, when I got the invitation, I was like, I can't. What am I, I mean, I'm just going to send regrets. Yeah, so, yeah you know. that's okay. No problem. <laughs> All good. So uh, now back to our regular scheduled program. <laughs> what we normally talk about our fries is the things we've been uh, reading on the site that have yes. been catching our interest. So, Joanna, why don't you go first? I'll go first. Okay. Well, there is a piece that's going to publish today. You can't do I know, that. But I every, won't do that. You I'll do that t- every I'll, time. I'll it's such it bullshit. Week. It's a good one, though. <laughs> um, but another piece uh, that published recently on the site is about California agave spirits. Ah, someone uh, talked about that. Yeah, yeah, somebody uh, predicted that as a trend. Um, uh, the writer is Ashley Scobie. And I thought this piece was great because it kind of explored, you know, the handful of distillers who are trying out uh, or trying their hand at yeah. Uh, agave spirits, obviously outside of Mexico, um, and whether or not it's financially and logistically viable, especially in the context of the shifting farming practices and the need for more resilient crops in California. So I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens. There are some regulations around California agave spirits, um, but just, you know, as we continue to see tequila rise um, and the popularity of tequila and, and mezcal, like what will happen there uh agave takes a long time right uh four to seven four to seven seven years years. to harvest uh those plants need to be planted (laughs) now uh, or yesterday and so yeah i thought this was a really interesting piece uh what about you adam I mean, well, I was just going to say, you know, California stole part of Mexico from Mexico, so of course they're going to steal tequila from Mexico, too. You know, just <laughs> only, uh, only a matter of time. It will be different. <laughs> yeah, These will be different agave plants, too. So, so more like mezcal. Anyways, uh, so for me, I enjoyed Olivia's piece, a member of the team, mm-hmm. uh, on the idea of blind wine lists and blind pricing on those wine lists. So basically, uh, she explores this phenomenon that we talked about a little bit on the podcast before of wine bars that are electing to have no list for their buy the glass pours yeah, no and menus. sort of yeah they they come over tell you how you're feeling check out like if you're wearing doc martens or like you know grates or some shit and then they're like oh your personality says this and then they pour you the glass and while that seems really cool in a you know it's it's a parlor trick uh and while that parlor trick seems cool to uh, some consumers especially consumers that are more intimidated by wine um the blowback from this trick has been that a lot of consumers then feel burned when they get the bill at the end of the night and realize that the wine that was then poured for them was like $25, $30, etc. Uh, she talks to a few wine bars, but but two of them that are pretty prominent that do that do this in New York or have done this in New York are Sauced and Anfora. Mm-hmm. Fora have been around forever, um, but has changed hands a few times. And um, I think what's interesting is that by the end of the piece, you realize that both of them have stopped the blind pricing while they still don't 
tell you what the wine is. They now tell you before they bring the wine what the price is, what the range is. They also guarantee a certain range of all their glasses, which not, which they were not both were not doing previously, which I thought was also interesting. So again, I think realizing that, like there is some fun to this, but that cons- consumers don't aren't all in on the game and want to play the game if then at the end of the day they wind up paying for something that they didn't intend to to pay, right? Like if you're if you're willing to be surprised, but surprised on a twelve to sixteen dollar glass, not on a sixteen to twenty four dollar glass, and that glass was the twenty four dollar one that you got, then you know you're going to have issues. So I thought that that was interesting. Is like she sees some of the positives and the negatives of it, and I talked to consumers as well. I thought it was an interesting read. And again, look, I'm all for anything that wine bars are doing to try to be much more exciting and fun for consumers. And so I don't want to poo poo it. You know, out of the gate, when when she first pitched this in the editorial meeting, we all did because we're like, yeah, no one wants to feel like they get ripped off. But if you're going to at least guarantee some sort of a price range, I'm here for you to then experiment with the way that you sell the wine if people think it's fun. But clearly there was a lesson that needed to be learned about disclosing price. What about you, Zach? Well, you know, the piece that really jumped out to me on the site this week was uh, by Hannah Staub about the question of whether – uh, you know, restaurants should embrace full on like a, a wine program that is fully American wine. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, that subject that I have a lot of thoughts on. We do know that you have a lot of thoughts on it. But you know who <laughs> else has a lot of thoughts on that subject? The author herself. So Hannah, a uh, member of the team, is in the studio with us today. Welcome, What's up, Hannah? Hannah? Thank you. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> We're excited to have you. Uh, so, Hannah, why don't you tell us about the piece? Because you pitched this. You, how long ago did you pitch this now? It was a few months ago, It right? was a few months ago, yeah. yeah. Well, as you know, I love to dine out. and <laughs> Yes, yeah, so uh, you want to... How do you often wanna, do you dine out, Hannah? Uh, like three or four times a week. <laughs> do you want to give You want to give a shout out to your uh, your, your handle? Oh, sure. Follow me on all things food NYC. Um, <laughs> she gives great reviews of restaurants and all the dishes that she's Very eating. thorough. Very thorough. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like basically anyone who goes out to eat has noticed probably in the past 20 years that there's a lot of farm-to-table restaurants yeah. that are very excited about promoting their use of local ingredients and really making it a part of their messaging that they are sustainably sourcing local foods and making it a huge part of their like concept. So I think it's interesting as a wine person to go to a restaurant like this and hear what they have to say about how local all of their food is and then see the wine list and see that it is all international wines. So I always thought that was interesting, especially as someone who loves domestic wines and New York wines as someone who lives in New York. Was this something that you were like noticing when you were going out, like you were seeing all American wine lists or? Well, I was seeing none, none right, of this. The, 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 the opposite. opposite. Yeah, and yeah, then, yeah. and then that is what made it stand out even more when a few restaurants opened recently that were kind of saying we do all local ingredients or American themed food and we're incorporating the wine list into this like holistic concept. So I thought that was very interesting um, with a few more recent openings of Silver Apricot uh, in the West Village and Bar Miller and Rosella in the East Village that do like all local, locally sourced fish for sushi and Japanese food and things like that. Uh, And they do mostly New York wines, but domestic wines there too. So yeah, I thought it was interesting to see more restaurants kind of embracing this and wanted to put a spotlight on what they were doing and, and, the, and the reasons why yeah and the reasons why because it's it's frustrating as i think zach talked about in a recent podcast that we're seeing a lot of italian 
restaurants that are going to have all Italian-themed beverages and French restaurants that have French-themed beverages. This has always been true with wine lists, but no American restaurants or local farm-to-table restaurants were really doing the same with American wine, which I thought was kind of interesting, and especially in New York, frustrating as the third largest wine-producing state in the country. I mean, here it seems like a no-brainer to include New York wines. Yep. Hold on a sec. I have a question for him, and then and then and then I want to hear your opinion because you because you you really want to talk about this piece. But when you talk to some of the restaurateurs, is is some of the trepidation that some of them have? Now these are people that did it, obviously, but mm-hmm. that, like they just think that when a consumer comes into their restaurant, like they expect to see Burgundy, they expect to see Barolo, and when they only see New York, they're kind of annoyed. And then also, whose fault is that? Is that the fault of the? restaurants for not putting more New York wines on the list so that people don't they're not comfortable with them in the first place or is that just that like New York has done a, you know I think it's because that's always the, the the feedback I've gotten from restaurants like well we don't do it because consumers don't want to drink that yeah unfortunately it's kind of like bo- chicken and egg yeah yeah both sides like the education that needs to be done should happen in restaurants and but it shouldn't be only on restaurants to make this happen because they still have to make money they still need to sell wine but I think what a lot of the people that I interviewed said when they get pushback, because they do get pushback, they say, oh, where's your burgundy? Where's your champagne? But they either approach it by kind of presenting the wine without saying where it's from first and then revealing after they said how much they like it that it's from New York. Right. So they don't develop those kind of preconceived notions about the wine. Or in the case of Silver Apricot, they had like a French wine on hand and they did kind of a blind tasting for a customer once between like a French Chenin Blanc and an American Chenin Blanc and they preferred the American style and it kind of just changed their mind. Um, so I think just like one guest at a time when they're there and they're saying like, this is our concept when you're at our restaurant, this is what you're going to drink because it's a part of the full experience and really including the wine list as part of their overall concept. So it takes people kind of proving it one step at a time to get people to accept it. Right. Yeah. All right, Zach. Well, I actually I wanted to ask Hannah a couple of questions too, actually about stuff that came Fire. up in her in her reporting. So the first one I wanted to ask is, you know, you talk you talk to I'm sure some people who had like like Vince Morrow and stuff who have sort of lists that are heavily domestic but not fully domestic, and maybe some other you've either for this piece or just in general chatted to people whose wine programs are all kinds of things. And I'm wondering if one of the big issues here is that if you're a certain kind of restaurant, and I would imagine this is very common in New York. You look at the kind of profit margin that you can generate with a high, you know, a high price point bottle of, be it you know, Burgundy, Champagne, uh, Bordeaux, whatever, even you know, Napa Cab, which obviously is domestic, and say like we can't forego that. Like we need to have these wines on hand so that when someone comes in and wants to spend hundreds or thousands of dollars on a bottle, we're not like, well, our most expensive bottle is I don't know, one hundred and thirty dollars or something. Is that something you heard from anyone? I think that the issue that more people were talking about was more on the other side of getting like high quality value wines. Yeah, because I think you could find, I mean, if you wanted something equivalent to champagne, you'll find ultramarine on almost any uh, U.S. focused wine list as a sparkling wine that can get hundreds to a thousand dollars on a restaurant wine list. But I think that yeah, what people were saying was the margins on the buy-the-glass pours are usually really beneficial for having those international options. And when I spoke to Faith from Woodford Food and Beverage, she was talking about 
I love that place. In Portland. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you <laughs> recommended it thing. Um, <laughs> but they were saying that they do their entire, like, by the glass program is, like, international to kind of have that vibe of you can get a carafe, you can get a glass, like a brasserie type thing. Right. But they bring it in sustainably, like, in vats or kegs or they bring it in in like a big plastic bag and keg them in new york and send them up to portland so they're trying to keep that sustainable edge while still getting those good values but then all the bottles like the entire bottle list is domestic so they found the balance there of like getting to cash in on those good margins for the by the glass pours while still like doing things as sustainably as possible but then embracing domestic where it made sense for them financially yeah i think it's interesting because you know i i do I do wonder why this isn't done more because you do see this happen in lots of other places around the world. I mean, like if, if you ever said to, you know, someone in Turin that you would like to see their list of French wines, they would probably punch you in the face. Yeah. Now, well, they show you the champagne list. Yes. But that's about it. And it's very close. And it's, I mean, now maybe at the top Michelin star restaurant, they would have some Burgundies because also, you know, they understand that people might want to compare them to the Barolos, but like it's literally the largest city in the region that hosts Piemonte and th- why would they ever do that? Yeah. And I remember when I w- first went to Bordeaux, you know, I don't know, 10 years ago and I was with a bunch of uh, French peers were basically saying to me that like they didn't under, they did not understand why America was not more loyal to its regions. Like one of them was from the Rhone region of France was like, we only drink Rhone wines. Like I don't know any board. I didn't learn about Bordeaux wines or have really any Bordeaux wines. So I went to college and then one of his friends who was from Bordeaux was saying the same thing, right? Like they are very regionally focused. And I've heard that from my French friends, a bunch, like they also are very regionally focused about their cheeses, their dishes, like everything, maybe almost too much. Like maybe we could argue that's what makes America so amazing. Like we are a melting pot, blah, blah, blah. But I do think it's interesting when you like go to Napa now, for example, and like even in the Valley, there's massive amounts of the wine list that are not Napa focused. Mm-hmm. And like one of the only places still really doing it that's at the high end of cuisine in Napa is press. Otherwise, like basically, yeah. yeah, but basically everyone else is doing, you know, champagne, burgundy, et cetera. Like it's that's really interesting. I think that we have to talk about like quality as it factors into this, though. Right. I'm just after what you just yeah. said, I'm I'm. You know, reminded of what Tony Parker said to us about the cheese in America and yeah. how it's shit. <laughs> and I think it's just like the way that people outside of the United States and in Europe specifically experience drinking and eating culture is very different yes, from how true. we do here. And I think about, I don't know, I think about New York State specifically and yeah. like how long it's taken us to come around on New York State wines. Well, to be honest, we've also only come around basically well, for the majority recently, besides Hannah. And besides yeah, Hannah. Hannah has always on, No, and, and for the majority of consumers in, in New York that have come around, Paul Brady, don't come at me for this, <laughs> but is basically the Finger Lakes. Yeah. Most people still have not come around to the, to the North Fork because North Fork is almost so close to the New York City that it's seen as this like bachelorette party destination yeah. place with like most of the wineries not being that high quality and like everyone's like yeah i can count four or five whereas now it's kind of assumed by most people that like a majority of the finger lakes is quality mm-hmm. i think that also was because psalms embraced it during the pandemic and all this stuff and they could travel up there and whatever but like that has happened but it's only a part which is interesting well it's also like the variety of wine that you can get from these places yes. too right and for forever people only thought of the finger lakes for riesling right right and so I think that's changing now, um, but I definitely think that factors into 
how this plays out across the across the states, especially. Yeah. Right. Like it's not just for all of these other states that don't have robust wine countries. Uh, it's going to be harder to do that, especially with some of the regulations yep. mm-hmm. on bringing wines in from out of state. Well, two things. First, about the quality. That's always been a frustrating thing to me, the stereotypes that U.S. wine and New York wine always faces. Yeah. It's not always just Napa Cab is the only good American wine, which is what I feel like a lot of people think if you're going to spend money or order a bottle it, from America, it's going to be from Napa. And there's so much more out there than Cab and Pinot and Chardonnay. Like, Even if you look at our wine roundups from the past year, our top 50 list, we have Vermentino from California, Cabernet Franc from California. We have things like well, Cab Franc from Long Island and Gavard Chimino from Long Island and different things that kind of run the gamut, like Gamay, Teraldigo, Malvasia, like anything. Right. So there is just like so much growth and expansion. And when I was speaking to people for this article, they were saying just how exciting the growth and breadth of American wine is, particularly because there is so much room here to experiment. Like we don't have crazy appellation laws you don't have to make anything in certain places so there's a lot of room for people to experiment and make very interesting wines when i i went to silver apricot um in preparation for this piece and i had a sparkling wine from california to start i had a sauvignon from mendocino um, which is a grape typically found in the jura region of france and then we had a beautiful dessert wine from uh, tatamer in santa barbara that's kind of like and also Lisa style Riesling. So we did the entire three courses, like sparkling, white wine, and yeah. dessert wine, all from the U.S., and it, none of them were typical wines that you would expect. So yeah. that's one thing. And then the regulations, yeah, I think that's that's why we've never really been able to embrace wines outside of, like, our own states necessarily. Yeah. Like, I was shocked to hear from... Um, Charlie Marshall, when I spoke to him for this piece, that if you wanted to get, like, New Jersey wine uh, at his restaurant or Virginia wine or Maryland wine, they would have to have a New York distributor specifically. So he can sell wines from New York easily because they can get, like, a farm winery license to sell to restaurants in New York. But if you wanted to get wine from a different state from a small producer, they would have to be distributed via a a distributor. So it's kind of like this whole backwards... System, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think this this points out two other reasons why this can be really challenging. Not just in places where there isn't a robust wine industry, like locally, but but even in but especially in those places. One of them is a lack of access to information, and I think sometimes we think about this in terms of uh, like Hannah was saying before, and it, customers, wine drinkers being relatively unfamiliar with the mm-hmm. breadth of American wine. But it's also true for a lot of wine professionals. You know, a lot of wine professionals especially not even just in, um, you know, throughout the country are in a lot of ways more familiar with the wines and appellations of Europe than they are with American wine. And some of that comes from, you know, the way that certain accrediting bodies are oriented. Some of it comes from the reality that in certain cases, a trip to Europe seems more exotic and and more Mm -hmm. exciting and maybe something that a a SOM or a a wine director or a retail operator is going to either uh, take or invest in because it seems, again, more exotic and maybe, frankly, more fun than going to another part of the United States to learn about wine. 
And part of it is just, I think, a sort of blinkered lack of curiosity. And I, I encountered that a lot here, you know, again, in Seattle, a place with a robust, the second largest wine producing state uh, of robust domestic scene. I was shocked frequently by my colleagues in the wine industry who had seemingly little interest in yeah. little passion for local wine and, and that they didn't take avail themselves of many opportunities to uh, visit wineries, visit wine regions, attend trade tastings, meet people, and develop a you know, sort of understanding of the domestic wine scene, or the, in, the, and in particular, the local wine scene, which to me was you know, central to what I was doing. And, and obviously, the wine program that I primarily operated had a very strong Pacific Northwest focus. So that was it was important for me to do that, but I also genuinely enjoyed it. But the other piece of this is, and it comes back to something that I think we've talked about before, but not in this specific way, Another culprit here is distribution consolidation. And the problem here, too, is that when you look at part of what popularized a lot of these less well-known European regions and um, varieties and things like that is small-ish importers who, you know, Kermit Lynch being maybe the most famous, but there are many others who followed in his footsteps, who went to parts of Europe that at the time were relatively unknown, where there wasn't much market presence, or even into well-known regions, but where there were smaller producers who just didn't have any kind of way to really get their wine into the American market. And these importers have brought the wines in, they've built reputations for themselves, and they've developed relationships so that they are now available in many, if not all states. And obviously, certain wines are harder to get in certain states, but it's not uh, the case that if you're interested in to just pick a wine at random, Alsatian Pinot Gris, you can find in almost any market, you know, a half dozen examples, if not more, ranging from relatively inexpensive to Grand Cru. And yet with American wine in most parts of the country, it's not solely because of liquor laws and distribution laws, so that's part of it. You just have the the main big distribution companies who are only interested in large volume domestic production or very high-end allocated wine, and they have no interest in carrying portfolios of wine that are anything in between that fit into that wide middle of wine that people tend to want to drink, whether it's in restaurants mm. or at home. And I feel for a lot of people who run programs, uh, restaurant programs who open and run retail shops, because even if they are interested in having a robust domestic selection, if you're not in a place with a strong local industry, it can be really hard. It can, those wines can be very difficult to source, if not impossible to source. And that is not on them and it's not necessarily on the producers it's on our deeply fucked up three-tier system and and sadly that's the part that i'm not sure i have a lot of optimism about i remember a few of the winemakers you spoke to uh for the that restaurant uh wine list placement Mm -hmm. piece kind of discussing how that was a challenge for them yeah it's it's a deep bummer to them to find that they have a potential market for their wines in pick a state in texas in virginia in um you know wherever and yet it's very difficult to get a distributor who isn't one of the big couple of distribution companies that's going or in either case to get them to take you on because they're not big Mm -hmm. or to get a smaller distributor those smaller distributors in a lot of these states are being squeezed out of the market because they can't compete in certain ways with the few biggest companies and so you know I, that doesn't mean it's un, it's not doable. I encourage people who want to focus their programs on domestic wine. There are lots of great wines out there. There are ways to get them. You might have to work a little harder, and it might be a little bit more expensive than the inexpensive glass pour wine that you're used to. And you have to make a determination, as I think is you know in the piece, right, Hannah? You talked. I think uh, I think Vince said this, right? You can't do this at the cost of your business. But if you can articulate why it's important and you articulate why it's a value, right. I think people are generally willing to pay a touch more for something that feels 
intentionally selected in the way that they've been doing for locally sourced produce and meats and stuff like that for decades. See, I think, though, that the problem that wine is going to always face is that it is this ult- – ultimately, it's a luxury product. And while we are very willing to buy local apples and tomatoes, et cetera, because like we haven't been convinced that the apples or tomatoes from – another part of the world are that much better. Maybe we have like a little bit for a certain kind of Italian tomato or Mm. a certain kind of Japanese beef. Like for the most part, we kind of see produce as the, the, the closer you get to the source, the better. We've been educated about that, right? But if you look at luxury products as a whole, and we, we step out of the world of wine, let's look at watches, for example, right? So there was a very, very successful, very high-end watch company actually based in Pennsylvania around the turn of the century called Hamilton. It was considered to be some of the top mechanical watches made, rivaling Rolex and everything coming out of, of Switzerland. And for a while, it was very successful in the U.S. when basically the prices were cheaper to buy that quality than to buy Europe, mm-hmm. right? But then as Europe became more competitive and we we were able to bring goods over for cheaper, et cetera, all of a sudden people would rather save up and buy a Rolex, et cetera, than buy Hamilton. Hamilton went out of, you know, went under, kind of, it, it became super obscure, and now it's back, owned by a Swiss company. And uh-huh. all made in Switzerland, but they knew that the brand was still very powerful. And that happens a lot in fashion, et cetera. We, we just have not been able to convince Americans that, like, a shirt made in the USA – like, there are people that care about made – there's a lot of designers that are now doing yeah, all made yeah. in the USA products, right? But I still guarantee you if they had two products on the shelf, a product that's made in the USA and a product that's made in Italy, a pair of jeans, for example, I still think that the consumer would pay more for the jeans made in Italy even though – Everyone would say that the quality of jeans made in the U.S. is probably much higher because we've been doing it for a lot fucking longer. But that doesn't matter because the Italy brand of garment is just so revered. So I think that I think it depends where things are made. Potentially, right? Because if it's made in China, that's very different. No, that's what I'm saying. Though. Yeah, yeah. Like, but so, but so, the, so with this, but but wine is luxury, right? Wine's yeah. not commodity. We're willing to go outside. I think Hannah's saying this. What she's saying is is spot on. We're willing to go outside of like the luxury areas of Europe, et cetera, for the commodity wines. Like, if you want to make me box wine in Long Island, it does very well. Mm-hmm. So does you know bulk wines from the basically central coast of California. They do very well. No one, no one has a problem drinking those. Mm-hmm. It's once we start competing with the price points of Europe. Yeah. And so I think that where America has the chance is like when these regions like Burgundy become so overpriced that then you can have the educated, you know, restaurateur, some, et cetera, say, hey, like this shit from, from the Finger Lakes is, is on par with quality and dude, it's a fourth of the price. That's what I was going to say is I feel like maybe it's having some difficulty like domestic wine because it isn't fulfilling that extreme high end, but yeah. also not the extreme low end. But where I end up ordering a lot of my wines is kind of in the middle. And what I am looking for in terms of like a good value on a New York City wine list is usually around 70 or $80. Which is for, insane that that's yeah, a value. Uh, for a bottle. <laughs> but if you're looking at like getting a Burgundy, it's going to be $100 or more. Way more, yeah. And if you are looking to get like just a regular good Pinot Noir or even like Beaujolais now can be a hundred plus like per bottle, but you can find great Gamay, like the Scar of the Sea Gamay was on the Silver Apricot list for I think like $80. It's a great one. I, I love it. And then like Santa Barbara, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, I always think is like a great value on these lists um, compared to like European wine regions. So I think that it's it's hard to convince people because it's, it's right in that middle point. Yeah. And I think the last thing I want to say about this is 
wine is so much in restaurants in particular about the story the wine tells or the story that the you know the wine director the sommelier the server etc can tell about the wine and i think that part of this is in these settings that hannah lays out and lots of other ones that story goes hand in hand with the story of the restaurant as a whole and if you as an operator you as a wine director etc can't make that connection i think you're kind of you're kind of falling down on the job and it's not that there aren't great stories to tell in Europe and South America and Australia, et cetera. There are, but fundamentally when you're telling, when the story you're telling about your restaurant is local, 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 there is a discontinuity there that maybe most people don't notice, but is, is, is there when you are then like, but for wine, let's, let's, let's go across the ocean. Yeah. Cause you know, we gotta, and that I think is just some of that is, uh, laziness. Some of that is, you know, lack of imagination, and and some of it is maybe a uh, an outdated notion about what is going on in America. Mm-hmm. Totally, Hannah. Thanks for writing this. Hannah. It was yeah, a great thank piece. Thank you. Yeah, really good piece. Really thought provoking. Thanks. I like hearing what you all had to think about it. Yeah, and, le- <laughs> and you know what? If you're a listener and you want to let us and Hannah know what you thought about it as well, hit us up at podcast at vinepair dot com. Uh, Let's know how you'd respond to a domestic-only wine list. If you've gone to any restaurants that have cool mm-hmm. domestic-only wine lists, we'd love to hear about them. Um, for example, you know, the one that I went to in Portland, Woodford, which was pretty awesome. Uh, you know, let us know. And I really want to go to – what's it called? Apricot? Silver, Silver Apricot? Apricot. Silver I really want to go to Silver Apricot. Also, Bar Miller just opened. Um, it's all omakase local fish and all local menu for wine and Super cool. all beverages. I think that there's another place too in the West Village that's basically doing all domestic. The Psalm we was a VP fifty last year. But the I Wesley. Think, the Wesley. Yeah. Yeah. Saint Hannah knows. Yeah. Also, yeah. Follow her on Instagram. All things food NYC. <laughs> Thank you very much. And Zach and Joanna, talk to you on Monday. Have a great weekend. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So, the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.